0: Alright guys, welcome back to the Hunter's Quest Podcast. This is your host, Hunter McWaters. Today I am joined by Tony Smotherman, the traveling hunter. What's, What's up, going man? on, guys? <laughs> How you doing, dude?
1: Shoot, man, doing pretty fair, bro, for, for June anyways.
0: Yeah, Tuesday evening in June. Yes, sir. Yeah, and um, so I met Tony uh this year at the Western Hunt Expo out in Salt Lake. And we did a a little short podcast, but um, I knew at some point I had to get you back on because I don't know, you're fun to talk to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate the opportunity to be back on your podcast.
0: Yeah, man, it's good to be. It's good to have you back. And um, and you are from Tennessee, is that correct?
1: I am, bro. I live just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and okay. um, I I know um, you call me traveling hunter, but that's kind of my nickname from way back in the day because I. Well, I've pretty much spent six months on the road hunting since I was 19 years old, and wow. you can kind of tell by the gray area here below my chin <laughs> line is I'm not 19 years old anymore, so I do live in Tennessee. My mail goes to Tennessee, but I spend a whole lot of time in other great states as well.
0: Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so like I said, when we met, we were in Salt Lake, and I was actually, I, I was actually born in Nashville and lived what? out really? there. Yeah.
1: Oh, it man, was... I didn't realize that. So I'm about just right now, so I'm probably... Uh, 25 minutes from downtown Nashville.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, so my, a lot of my family, like my parents are both from Paducah, Kentucky. You
1: bet. Very familiar with Paducah.
0: Yeah, and so they, you know, a lot of people, I don't know about it anymore, but it used to be back in the day, a lot of the, a lot of the kids that kind of wanted to do something with their lives, moved from Paducah to Nashville, and so they ended up there, and that's, that's where I was born, so.
1: Man, it, it still is a great place, it's just a whole lot busier than it was when we were uh, little fellas for sure
0: yeah yeah and uh, i lived out there for a summer in college um and almost moved out there to, to actually try to do the music thing for a while um, but ended up going on a different route but uh fun town
1: it, it is a busy town and <laughs> you know uh, of course i was born and raised here and i have a hard time playing the radio let alone playing music yeah. um, <laughs> but everybody thinks because i fly out of nashville that i'm some kind of musician of some sort and most time when i'm flying out of nashville it's with a gun case and they're like oh so what's in the gun case and i'm like yeah it's not what you're thinking it's a gun <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: a gun <laughs> um well that's cool man so uh, i know you've been traveling well just to give folks a quick background um i know a little bit about your story but not a ton uh, i know you've been in the outdoor industry for a long time um you're host of a tv show at one point um so yeah just love to hear just a little bit about you and how you got into stuff and your backstory.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, so, so everybody wants to be, um, well, everybody that I know that's not in the hunting industry, they want to be in the hunting industry. Uh, (laughs) and I knew at a very early age that I want to be in the hunting industry. And, um, you know, it kind of started, um, I don't know. It kind of started a, a weird way, if you will. Um, I was raised hunting and fishing here in middle Tennessee. My dad was a big coon hunter. Mm-hmm. um so i spent a lot of time in the outdoors but we were chasing coons and basically when i was a young man that's kind of how we fed our family was was harvesting coons harvesting the pelt and taking the pelts to fur trade days at the end of hunting season mm. um and that's kind of how we made money and back then furs were well they were worth something uh, a really good yeah. size coon would bring 25 bucks nice. um so where are so you when running tree and walkers day with, with hundreds of them you know it, it actually turned into a uh, Pretty good amount of money. Yeah. Um, but what, kind like of you, in, what, what kind of hounds there? did you? What kind of hounds?
0: What kind of hounds did you run? Did you have tree and walkers.
1: But, so we had uh, we had walker hounds. Um, there was neighbors that were competitive uh, of us, and they were all blue tick dudes, but we okay. were all tri color walkers.
0: Nice. Okay. I used to have a tree and walker. That thing was awesome.
1: Oh man, dude! Uh, so, um, I grew up with give or take thirty walker dogs in my backyard my whole entire life
0: okay so i'm from southeast virginia and so we i don't do it so much anymore cuz we kind of moved but um the guy there i was in a dog club but we we ran deer with dogs i don't know if they do that in tennessee
1: we do not but i'm i'm familiar with the sport for sure
0: okay and uh there is something special about the smell of 20 dogs in july in the south
1: you know, it's like so. I obviously <laughs> I love dogs, um, but my dad was a true houndsman. Um, that was what he loved to do. Yes, hunting coons and harvesting coons and and things like that was part of it. But at the end of the day, it was mm. all about the dogs for him. He was a yep. true houndsman. Um, and and of course, as I got older, you know, a young man's mind changes a little bit, and things become more important than others, and <laughs> uh, I got to running kind of with the wrong crowd when I become a teenager and was doing some wilder things. And, uh, I had a, a kid that, uh, uh, was in uh FFA class or ag class as we know it, um, was in ag class and he, uh, asked me, you know, was I hunting? I a hundred? I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I've been running coon house my whole life. And he's like, oh no, man. He said, you don't hunt deer. And I'm like, Hmm, I, I can't say as I've ever seen one, to be honest with you. I said, no, I, I, I don't hunt deer. Um, I said, my dad talks about them all the time because our, our dogs would jump a deer at night and run up to the next county and deer is kind of my enemy. And yeah. he, was like, well, he said, Matt, why don't you come by my house one afternoon? And he said, I'd like to, uh, maybe show you how to shoot a bow and arrow. Ah,
0: like, okay.
1: Well, heck, I ain't never seen no bow and arrow up close, but yeah, I'd like to try it. Um, so anyway, see, I went out to that guy's house that afternoon, shot the bow, uh, become overly infatuated, uh, with archery hunting uh, and it basic, basically, at the end of the day, consumed my life uh, to the point where I quit running with the wrong crowd. I quit mm. doing things that I shouldn't be doing because I was a hundred percent focused on hunting whitetail. Uh, and so I, I took out reading every publication that I could get my hands on, deer and deer hunting, North American whitetail. Yes, I uh, love that. So and so forth. Um, yeah. And basically, when I when I got up to about nineteen, twenty years old, I realized that. Well, I mean, uh, not to sound weird, but the outdoors kind of saved me, uh, cause mm. I was very much headed down the wrong path. And thankfully that gentleman introduced me to bow hunting and, uh, it basically changed my whole world, uh, for the good. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to do outdoor industry stuff. I just didn't know if that was a thing when I was 20 years old, because, mm-hmm. uh, the outdoor industry that we all know and love and, and want to be a part of today. Well, it's kind of a, it kind of didn't exist back right. when I was 19, 20 years old. So um, I started out um, figuring out that, it, that the only way that I could really introduce other people to the outdoors was becoming an outdoor rider. Uh, and this goes back to kind of a lifelong lesson. Um, if you want to do something bad enough in life, you'll figure out a way.
0: Yep. Um, and you'll do it for free if you have to.
1: School, yeah. You know, when <laughs> I was in high school, my my worst subject was English. And I, I, I mean, really now some of my buddies tell me, I have a hard time speaking English now, but, um, so they kind of give me some grief about that. But, uh, I knew that I wanted to be, uh, in the outdoor industry. I knew that my only vehicle at that time, because there was no social media, there was no zoom, there was no podcast, no YouTube, mm-hmm. none of that. So I had to basically sit down and hand write letters, uh, to different editors across the country and basically submit ideas I had about articles.
0: Mm.
1: And, uh, before you know it, I was writing for multiple different publications. I uh, was writing for uh, a publication here in my home state called Tennessee Outdoor News, uh, which was just a statewide publication. Um, and then, of course, my my background um, up until this point is kind of a self-employed entrepreneurial spirit, if you will. So I knew very quickly early on that writing for a publication definitely got the voice that I wanted to get out there about how awesome the outdoors is and was, Mm -hmm. but it also drove me to do better. Uh, meaning that within two years of writing for my home state's publication, um, I ended up buying the publication from the owner, uh, and turned into owner, publisher, writer, editor. Um, and so I ran it with my wife for 10 years. Uh, And then after 10 years, I had 40 writers working for me full time and the publication had grown immensely. Um, But I knew when I was doing that, as again, if you want to do something bad enough, you'll figure out a way. So as I was writing, I knew that I I wanted a bigger platform to tell the story of outdoors is an awesome place. Uh, And my next step was jumping into outdoor television. Yeah. And there's one piece in there that I skipped as I was writing. Um, I ran into a young lady that worked for Night Rifles. Or uh, everybody oh, yeah. knows, him, I guess today is Night Muzzleloaders. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran into one, a, a gal that was the marketing manager there for Night at the time, and and it showed her a few of my pieces. And a lot of the pieces I had was using a Night muzzleloader because, you know, if you write a hunting story, um, typically the ones that talk about big bucks are the ones that gets the most love and most play. Yeah,
0: just uh, like just well. like videos.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I knew then if I wanted to uh, get my articles read even more, that it it had to have big bucks in it. And the only place the big bucks were hanging out uh, were other states than I lived in. So I traveled pretty heavily. And this is kind of where the traveling hunter scenario comes into play is um, I started traveling and living in my truck through Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, and kind of bounced across the country. Uh, during muzzleloader seasons because those midwestern states at the time yeah. were shotgun or muzzleloader only yep. so that's where my passion and love for muzzleloading come to be was when i started working with night and you're hitting um, public
0: land lot, i'm assuming in there
1: yeah a lot of public well pretty much all public land at that yeah. time now of course i don't do as much public land as i used to uh, but at that time yeah it was bounced from public ground to public ground and um, i traveled in a 1991 toyota pickup truck that had a nice. copper shell on the back and That's what I lived in for six months, um, from state to state. Nice. Yeah. So, um, I was out gathering data, uh, for articles, if you will, uh, (laughs) during those six months. Um, and I eventually started writing, uh, as my relationship with night muzzleloaders grew, I started writing their instructional and safety DVDs for all the gun models. that would come out each year. And, And then I started posting, the instructional dvds um for every gun model to come out and eventually started hosting night rifles born to hunt television which aired on the outdoor channel for about i believe it was actually five seasons Dang. um man when i was then, about
0: 16 years old i got a night muzzleloader for christmas one year and i remember the video i wonder if it was you on there i was watching
1: it very well could have been. If it wasn't me on there, if I hadn't transitioned to hosting them, I was definitely writing them at that time.
0: Interesting, man.
1: Um, Yeah, so it just kind of morphed, you know, and again, it's just if you want to do something bad enough, you figure out a way to do it, and um, I, I just knew what I wanted to do, and I knew that, you know, it's almost like, and we talk about the outdoors in general, it's like, I hate to, I know we just come off this COVID thing a couple years ago, and but the outdoors is an infectious thing. If you uh install that outdoor love and infection that that kid installed in me when i was in high school um it really can get people's life refocused um Mm -hmm. because it, it, it saved me at the end of the day um because i was doing a whole lot of bad things i shouldn't be doing and if it wasn't for the outdoors basically just captivating me who knows where i would be today probably not in this chair uh on this podcast working full time uh, mm-hmm. in a dream job working for CBA loaders now. Um, but there's, you know, there's always a path, uh, and a plan, you know, the man upstairs had a plan for me a long time ago. And, uh, in my teenage years, I thought it was partying, uh, but apparently it was not, it was being in the loading industry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, man. Um, I want to, I want to go back a couple of things you said there. A lot of your story reminds me of myself because, um, I was I grew up where I grew up it was shotgun, muzzleloader and archery only, and um, and I was the same way man like, so my dad you know got me into hunting but he was he was really, duck hunter waterfowler loved dove hunting and stuff like that and um, and then he got me my first bow and actually first time I ever went bow hunting was on public land in the LBL.
1: I'm oh, sure dude, L- bro. I cut yeah. my teeth on the LBL up there, man. man they got okay. the best muscling season ever up there.
0: Yeah, and so so my dad grew up, growing up in Paducah. Him and my uncle, technically is my cousin. So my dad and his cousin, they just lived in the LBL and just that's they bow hunted. and That's all they did. And so they we kind of this sort of family reunion. I got a picture of it actually right back here, my thing. And my dad bought me a bow. We went in, and, and me and my cousin, um, we we and we all. You know, hunting there. We of course we didn't see a thing, but uh, you know it was fun. And then, and then we got permission to hunt on some land up here, uh, on the eastern shore of Virginia. And I remember that first night going and sitting on a little bean field, and like fourteen deer came out in that field and just had no idea it was there for you know two three hours. You know, you know, inside of seventy eighty yards, and I was just like hooked. Like, and all through high school. I wasn't going to parties on the weekends. I was driving out there by myself and hunting all weekend. Um, you know, reading Deer and Deer Hunter magazine, watching the Drury you know, Drury Guys on T V or man. on the you know, getting the eight you know, Dream Season Eight on VHS and <laughs> and that like Friday night I was watching Dream Season and then Saturday I was driving up there as soon as I could drive and uh before that my dad would drive me up there and um you know, walk me out to the stand and so um for me it was like just something about seeing those deer out there. Just I was hooked after that. But it sounds like for you, it was more about the archery itself. Is that what it was? You think?
1: Yeah, you know. So I think the, I think what about uh, what in, um uh, captivated me about the archery side of things is, is my mind is very mechanical. Mm-hmm. I ain't a smart guy by any stretch, but I can tear your car apart in the lawn out there and put it back together in about twenty four hours. And so I'm really big into custom classic hot rods here now. Okay. And, uh, but my mind has always been very mechanical and the archery side of things. And I think, so I think that's what got me into musloading too, but the archery side of things, you know, you got to do, you got to uh, figure out your, your broad head weight and, and you got to tune it to your fletchings and you got to figure out helical or straight and kinetic energy and FOCs. And that's a lot of mechanics that goes yeah. into archery. And I think that's why it was such an easy transition for me, uh, to be overtaken by the musloading world. Yes, yeah. muzzleloaders loaders, in essence, are the same way. It's not like you go buy a 270 at your local sporting goods store, put a bullet in it or a casing in it, squeeze the trigger, and it goes bang. Muzzle loaders, you have to, number one, figure out which powder you're going to use, pelletized or loose, you're going to weigh it, is it going to be volumetric, um, projectile weight. Uh, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on yeah. about mechanics of muzzle loading. Uh, so I think that's why that, that it, it really jumped on me pretty hard. And and also a lot of the states through the Midwest didn't allow centerfire rifles. So, yep. but mm-hmm. yes, it was archery that really took me over and took me by surprise. But I think it was the mechanical aspect of it, of all the moving pieces, it really make things happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, man i I used to just shoot my bow. Like I was probably ten times better shot with my bow when I was fourteen than I am right now. Like, cause I, I was just all I would do all the time. I had a tree stand in my backyard and I would just practice my 3d target. Like I would wake up at like 6am in the summer and like, and just wait for squirrels to shoot in my backyard. I lived in like a neighborhood.
1: <laughs> it's funny how life changes when we get a little bit older, but I was the same way. I, I wasn't 14, but it was probably more like 16, 17 that I just could not stop. shooting Yeah. My
0: yeah, man. Um, so that's, that's funny, man. Um, Let's see, there's a few other things I wanted to um, – so did did, uh, did your dad, was he kind of like – was he supportive or was he kind of like, hey, let's go coon hunting? You're like, no, I'm going deer hunting there. What was that kind of dynamic like? Well,
1: so, uh, so he was supportive for sure, but he could not figure out why in the world I would want to go sit in a tree stand for hours on end, <laughs> hoping a deer showed up when we could go turn the dogs loose them out in a cornfield someone other than have a, a coon tree in a matter of minutes. Yeah. He just couldn't figure out his his level of patience uh was a bit different than mine. And I I one thing I think too that really drove me harder into deer hunting and it's almost like the bigger it's like the Tim the Toolman Thaler scenario, bigger's better. <laughs> yeah. So I remember growing up the only rifle I knew uh that even existed was a Winchester model 67 a single shot 22 rifle that's all my dad hunting with he was a big collector of those because it was a great gun and you know the 22 rifle shell is a little short guy and i remember one day one of his friends come over a big coon hunter guy uh and he but he also deer hunted and he pulled out a 270 shell and from somebody who has only seen a 22 rifle their whole life it looked like a missile yeah I'm like, what is that? Yeah, he's like, oh, it's a deer rifle. It's a deer caliber, two seventy. I'm like, I don't even know what that is, but dude, I want a part of that because that's a monster shell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I think that also kind of pulled me into uh, shooting these big caliber guns that we shoot today. When I grew up shooting this little plink, yeah,
0: shooting
1: gun, you know, little
0: twenty two. Yeah, man, and it's been like interesting for me too. Like along that same line, because like I said, where I grew up, I could only bow hunt and and you know shotgun so i mainly focused on bow hunting and some muzzle loading and some shotgun but mainly it was about bow season for me and and so you know when i found western hunting like 3 or 4 years ago Oof. um it oh, was another animal there bro yeah it's like it's like I, I for me it was just like oh yeah rifle you know you just like throw a scope on there and you know whatever and and then i realized like there's a lot more to like precision rifle shooting and shooting at distance mm-hmm. and Um, And that's been a really cool journey for me. Like, you know, like something as simple to someone who's very experienced as, you know, mounting your own optic onto a firearm and doing it well and doing it correctly. I had no idea how to do any of that. Um, And learning that whole process and, and really getting a rifle dialed in is is also cool. It's just it's just a different different thing.
1: A lot of mechanics to that as well, you know. Like back in the day, you'd have to lap your rings and ba- or your rings yeah. when you put a scope on it. To make I still sure do that.
0: Good. I still do that. But like we were saying earlier, those Seekins rings, you don't really have to mess with. Oh, brush
1: I mean, I run Seekins on everything I got, and man, oh man, it is so nice not to have to lap my rings. I know. Faces, you know,
0: I put that tool on there, like right out of the box, and it's just like bing.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, they're money, bro. it's precision yeah. as you get, so. So technology is a wonderful thing when it comes to manufacturing rings like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so yeah, man. So so you got into it through writing, and then I know you, you said you started kind of hosting some different stuff, and I'm assuming probably it was your your uh, your charm and your southern personality that kind of helped you uh, shine in front of the camera. But um, <laughs> I don't you-
1: know. Everybody says I'm full of crap. It's a Christmas turkey, so I'm not sure what <laughs> what got me there. But but I, I knew that I. Uh, I knew that I, I almost felt like, all right, so so I, I dig way deep in here. So yeah, know, as I was going through and I was was outdoor riding and become a magazine owner uh, and was venturing into hosting DVDs for night muzzleloaders and really was super, super intrigued uh, by the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be some superstar or blah 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 but I knew that it would get me to a different audience a bigger broader audience and I had I had uh, I was going to a church there um, back when I was um, in my late 20s and the pastor of that church um, was a big turkey hunter um, mm. and I felt like I felt comfortable enough to talk to him I said man you know I said I need to know, I said, why in the world are you a pastor of a church? I said, because I, 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 don't, know, I don't know anybody other than you that, that does what you do, but I do know when I was in high school, that's not what anybody talked about. Didn't, mm-hmm. Nobody talked about being a pastor of a church. They wanted to be a policeman, a fireman, blah, 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 doctor, on right. so forth. And he goes, man, that's just it's just what I thought I was supposed to do. So that's what I did. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, well, here's a really weird statement, but... I said, you know, when I was a a younger man transitioning between a youth to teenager, I said, I had some awkward times there where I was getting a little sideways with things. And I said, the outdoors, I said, I believe is truthfully what saved me. Uh, um, I said, obviously the man upstairs had a plan. Uh, The outdoors was it. I said, I I think I'm supposed to be, you know, I think I'm supposed to work in some kind of hunting industry or something. I said, but I I don't know if that's really such a thing um, that it is today. And he goes, hey man, if you think that's what you're supposed to do, you just figure it out. You just figure yeah. it out. And it started by magazine ownership, and then the next step was into hosting DVDs or writing DVDs and hosting them, and then went into television. And to give me a broader audience, and it wasn't to for fame or fortune per se, if you will, uh, but it was about just reaching uh, a new demographic of individuals that I could not do uh, as a writer. Uh, and and I wanted to make sure that they understand or understood what kind of amazing time that I was having on these trips on these yeah. hunts per se. Uh, and again, it wasn't to, to be, uh, bragging or boasting. It's like, this is amazing, you know? So I want you guys to live vicariously through me and I want yeah. you guys to strive and, uh earn to try to be in the outdoor industry or at least go partake in some kind of outdoor activity because mm-hmm. it's a darn great place to be. And as, as we know it today, modern times here today, you know, the, the youth that's coming up today are tied up in, well, just all kind of craziness this world is, has in it right now, yeah. TV games and all the bad stuff on these phones and computers that they have access to today. If they got outside and spent some time behind a fishing pole or behind a BB gun, uh, it would make them uh, a different human being and a better human yeah. being, I think, at the end of the day. So that's the kind of reason I got into TV was to reach a broader audience and make sure they understand what a awesome time I was having and what a cool, um, cool thing it was to experience all these great outdoor locations from Newfoundland to Alaska, to New Zealand. Um, and and as it it got to growing, um, after doing the night rifle born to hunt TV, I hosted um, a show for summit tree stands called summits high places. Mm -hmm. Uh, then it went to Moultrie's the hit list for Moultrie game cameras. And then after that, again, me being the kind of guy I, mean, I want to do my own thing and I have ideas and vision. I started my own show, uh, which was called traveling hunter. Um, uh, because that's kind of what my signed off and all my articles as was traveling hunter and all my buddies called me that just because that's what I was doing all the time. Um, and then I hosted that show on the sportsman channel for five seasons. So nice. uh, it gave me a big platform to show a lot of people. There's a lot of great places in this country to go hang out and see and hunt and fish.
0: Yeah man, so those those early shows you hosted were those like shows that somebody was producing and they're kind of like, hey, we need a host, and they kind of like came to you, or did exactly, yeah, that? that's exactly okay.
1: what it was. Summit Tree Stands did this, did that, uh, and then Moultrie also did the same thing.
0: That's cool. Yeah. And then, um, and then when it came to doing your own show, then you're um, in there pitching it to trying to find sponsors and all that stuff too. I'm assuming, right?
1: That's when things got real
0: yeah it's everybody different.
1: wants their own tv show till they do it so uh yeah, i so, found
0: out myself how much work this thing is dude
1: it's a lot of work bro it's a lot yeah. of work and it never quits you know i mean i i found myself up uh a lot uh at two or three o'clock in the morning when it was quiet and going through video footage and things like that and um i did not edit my own show i was uh very close friends uh with the producer uh at that time lee and tiffany show called getting close which was their original mm-hmm. show. The producer of that show was a really good friend of mine and i knew if i ever did my own thing i wanted him to do it Uh, his name was mark baird he's a gentleman out of michigan and probably the most talented creative human being that i ever was around and spent time with in a in a tree stand or in a um, lodge across the country somewhere Mm -hmm. so i knew i wanted him to do that and when it was time to go then he was uh, available to do so but just to kind of give you an idea with airtime full-time camera guy travel cost uh, hunting license costs, production costs. My annual budget was a half a million bucks is what it cost me to be on yep. uh, the networks. Yep. So a lot of money, uh, took a lot of work. Uh, and and the, and the reason I don't do it today is that um, unfortunately my dad uh, got terribly sick here several years ago and uh-huh. uh, ended up having dementia uh, and, and basically needed 24 hour care for quite a while. So I just quit doing everything that, well, I quit doing everything, basically. So I stopped doing my show. I stopped uh, traveling. I stopped everything to take care of him while he was still here with us. So I wanted to make sure that I knew totally. he uh, put a lot of time into me as a young man, and I wanted to make sure that when he needed me, i give it back.
0: Absolutely, man. Family's number one, so you, you did the right you, thing there. Um, but
1: really, at the end of the day, it all happened uh, for a reason. Everything worked out like it should. So when that, when, when the Traveling Hunter, or when I stopped Traveling Hunter, Um, I immediately took over here at CVA, which I was already working for CVA. I started at CVA in 2009, was already working with them. Uh, But when my dad passed five years ago, uh, I took over influencer relations. So I handle what I handle everybody underneath our brand of what I used to be. Writers, bloggers, um, magazine owners, editors, publishers, TV show hosts, pro Mm -hmm. staff, uh, shooters, uh, and also podcasters, which I never was a podcaster, but Uh, So I handle all aspects of media now, uh, which is a a really easy thing to do because uh, everybody that I work with, I've actually, except for a podcaster, stood in their shoes at some point.
0: Yeah. And it's not too much different. It's just kind of talking a lot. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Which you're good at, so. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but it, it, it works out really well. I, I, I enjoy working with everybody. I know their I know and understand their passion because like I said I have stood in their shoes before. Yeah. Um and now as a company man it's very easy for me to uh try to fulfill their needs and help them reach their goals uh because I know what they need from us.
0: Yeah. And so um but you were able to to make that show obviously work financially, um yeah. despite the Costs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um it you know, I, I again being in the outdoor interest since I was nineteen. I started that show when I was thirty nine, I believe is right. So I already had a lot of very great uh business partners and acquaintances in the hunting right. industry. Yeah. Um so it always comes down to, you know, the old scenario and everything in life. It ain't who you are, it's who you know. Uh, and I knew a lot of people uh, just for the sheer fact of my time um, working in the industry. So I, at that time, I was about, I guess I was, well, basically 20 years in the game at that time when I started my own show. So mm-hmm. uh, I had really strong relationships across the board.
0: Cool. And so I know you just kind of said what you're doing at CVA, but what is, like, I know you do a lot of traveling still and put on different events and stuff like that. And and also on the Bergara side, um, and you just got back from doing a bunch of stuff. What were you doing? Like some kind of
1: turkey? Yeah, out? we were. Uh, we just were out in Oklahoma, and on our Bergara side of things, which is our, our high end uh, semi production rifle manufacturing, um, we do what we call the Bergara experience, and that basically um, we do kind of a, a social media campaign to like, where hey guys, we're going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've rented a range out there who wants to mm-hmm. come out and test drive the Bigar rifles um, for an entire day. So basically we put on this big giant shooting event uh, in different ranges or at different ranges across the country. Um, and doing that, we bring in a big caterer. Um, we had Huay Grills, uh, which mm-hmm. is a really big uh, outdoor grill company. We had those guys uh, over at the Tulsa event and they were there cooking all kind of meat on site. And we hang out for a while, we put on a big feed uh, then we go to a long to the long range portion of things and teach people nice. how to shoot uh, a thousand yards uh, and they run our guns everything that we make they run our ammo don't cost anything other than just a little bit of participation price to pay for some of the uh some of the swag yeah. and um, do we run guns for four hours on a range and when it when it's done it's not a hard sales pitch. Everybody goes home and had a good down the range and hopefully learn a lot of new techniques of how to shoot long range
0: yeah that's that sounds fun man i i need to get uh
1: it it is so fun man i need to get on that when we do these events we've been doing them for uh well we're going on our fifth year of doing these these pagar experiences and we we try to do two to three each year and we travel to different regions of the country whether so like here uh in a couple weeks we're headed to michigan and we're going to do a long-range shooting event up there in michigan but we go from oklahoma to michigan and we've been in Wyoming and we've been in Montana and we've been mm-hmm. in Alabama. We try to hit different regions or portions of the country each year. Um, and when we put these on, they literally are full within 10 minutes. Wow. And we have, we typically limit to about 80 guests, uh, per event. Cause that's all myself and our team can handle, uh, yeah. in a full day. Um, but they, they basically book up in minutes. Uh, and then there's always a giant waiting list at the end. Uh, So uh, what's really cool is it's kind of become a cult-like following, if you will, to where that typically each event we put on after the first two years, we'll have eight to ten states represented. So it's not just local people. They'll fly in, drive in. We've had them drive. Excuse me. We've had them drive. Literally two years ago, we were in Montana. We had people driving from Virginia, South Carolina, Alabama georgia Dang. all the way across the united states of america to montana to eat food with us and shoot on the range for four hours and go Jeez. Home. it's that's crazy. a serious drive <laughs> it's crazy awesome these people are so excited to come to these events so wow yeah pretty cool stuff but the, the job now definitely does um uh require a bunch of travel through the yeah. summertime and then one of the greatest things i feel that i get to do uh for our brand because I do work with eighteen different T V shows that we sponsor. Um I, I typically a as a man get to go on a hunt with each one of these T V shows uh throughout the spring and fall. So even though that I'm not actually doing T V and stuff like that anymore, I'm actually still doing T V uh for the C V A and Begara brand, depending on obviously which show that I'm going with. Yeah. Uh, I still get to two T I just don't have to come up with a half a million bucks every year. <laughs>
0: That's that's nice. You just get to go and have fun and
1: <laughs> go say, have see fun, ya. <laughs>
0: no, that's cool, man. Um, so I got, could you pick a favorite hunt? You've traveled a lot and done a lot of stuff. Could you pick a favorite hunt or favorite oh, species?
1: Question, so you mentioned earlier talking about uh, going west and how that yeah. uh, is a whole new ball game, different mm-hmm. rifle setups and different strategies and techniques and all that kind of stuff. Well, even though I live here in Nashville, my heart is in Wyoming. Um, oh, yeah. so I am, uh, a big mule deer fan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I know you can't see it, but like on the other side of this door behind my head is a 22 foot giant wall trophy wall. Uh, and I got like 70 mounts on the wall. Oh dang. Western side and a Eastern side. So I got one side for whitetails and one side is for Western big game. Are you on a
0: phone right now? Sir? Are you on a phone right now?
1: No, I'm on a computer.
0: I was going to say, go take me out and show me, but it's all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty slick. I'll tell you what I do. Hang on. This baby's mobile. Oh, nice. Right, bear, bear with me as I walk out
0: here. Oh, you're good. All right, guys. If you are listening to the audio, go to YouTube and check it out. You're about to see the Smotherman Trophy Wall. Oh, yeah. Mhm. All right, so you got white tails on the left.
1: So that's that's Whitey's there. Yeah, and the then down in the floor on pedestals. Ooh, that's a nice Where'd you kill that around? bull at? So that's a that's a Wyoming bull.
0: Ooh, that's a nice all one. All those
1: are Wyoming muleys, couple one eighties, couple two hundreds, another wow. Wyoming bull. Well, all those are Wyoming bulls. That's a that's a that guy. There's like three fifty three, I believe. The one on wow. the fireplace there is three seventy two. Ooh. Yep, all those and all those are muzzleloaders. All of them. Everything. Yep, pretty much. Yep. Wow. Yep, so uh, and then of course
0: Now are you hunting mainly muzzleloader seasons or are you hunting general seasons with a muzzleloader just cuz you want to? Or both?
1: No, so a lot of those were or de- definitely dedicated muzzleloading seasons. Yeah. But like the the elk side of things were not. They were just general rifle situations there. And I didn't hunt with a centerfire up until like, my gosh, maybe four, five years ago now. So okay. from 1992 until, well, four or five years ago, so 2016, 2017, I hunted exclusively across the country with muzzleloader-only stuff.
0: Just because you just like it.
1: I just liked it, man. I got infatuated with it, man. It became it become a problem, and um, i become a collector of muzzleloaders. So I, yeah. I'd say probably across the board... I probably have one of the larger collections of muzzleloaders in the country just wow. because it just become a thing for me man i just That's... love the mechanics of it uh, i love teaching people about it i loved getting youth involved in it because i think um i really think at the end of the day it allowed young people to understand the mechanics of a firearm better because they could mm-hmm. see the powder going down they could understand what the bullet looked like they had to push the bullet down uh, so all the mechanics of it just really just drove me crazy to where I just couldn't get enough of it. And like out West, when you go into Montana and Colorado and Wyoming, some of those States do have dedicated muzzleloading seasons. Some do not. Yeah. Um, and my buddies that I hunted with in Wyoming all the time, I'd go out there during a the general rifle season, which typically was November 1st. And they're like, dude, for real, what are you doing with a muzzleloader out here? Well, why are you not shooting a 300 rum? yeah I'm, like, I'm a better hunter than you dude i can get closer i don't have to shoot them a thousand yards away i want to yeah. see the whites of their eyes bro
0: that's awesome dude <laughs> yeah i i love the simplicity well like this tag that i got this year it's a muzzleloader tag i got is uh it's it's new mexico and they just went to no optic mm-hmm. so there's something Woo. I'm there's something
1: back a little bit yeah,
0: it's something but there's something really cool and like just about the simplicity and like just kind of the uh the old I don't know, the nostalgia of it or something. I don't know. I I oh, like yeah. it too, man. Um
1: I've got a Colorado muter tag uh for September uh and it's an open site. Uh, okay, open yeah, yeah. State.
0: Yeah. I actually drew a um a Colorado Muzzleloader um antelope tag as well this Whoa, year, this but it's, year? Yeah.
1: Oh, but, man.
0: Yeah, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a a backup in case I didn't draw anything else. So I may actually yeah. end up having to return that tag. I'm not sure yet um, if I can pull off that that trip as well. But um, hey,
1: while you're out west, just swing through New Mexico and then up to Colorado. I
0: know, well, it's gonna it's it's that that tag is actually in September. That Colorado. Ooh, okay. Yeah, which man, I wish I could make it work. I just don't know. Because I'm also – I got a couple big trips. Um, So I do that New Mexico hunt, and then I'm driving. As soon as that is done up to Montana, I got a general elk tag in Montana.
1: Oh, my gosh. Good for you, bro. Sounds like a pretty solid year for you.
0: Oh, dude. In August, I'm going to Alaska. So it's very solid. Yeah.
1: Oh, my goodness. So what's going on in Alaska?
0: So I'm going the last week of August – up to all the way up. I mean, we're flying up to Prudhoe Bay and then um I found a guy you know, everything in Alaska these these days is like 2 years out booking, uh, right? yeah, for sure. Um but I called this guy that I knew some other guys in the industry who had hunted with them. Um and they got a they got a, f- a fan boat operation um oh, on one of these yeah. rivers. And they do drop camps. And he was like, dude, we're booked like two years out. I could maybe squeeze you in, you know, in two years. And I was like, okay, how about this? Take me up on an off day. I don't need a drop camp. I'll take all my own stuff, and I'll float out in a pack raft when we're done. You don't have to pick me up. He's like, oh,
1: my oh. gosh, bro, that's sick.
0: Yeah, he's like, all right, we can do that. <laughs> so, so that's what we're doing, man. We're you're going to be like about 35 miles up a river and uh, and drop us, and then we're going to hopefully kill two caribou and float out.
1: Oh, man, that's, that's a dream, man. I, we have, over the years, spent a bunch of time up in Alaska, but it was mostly for hunting black bear down the round, uh, okay. the Prince William Sound area. Yeah. Um, truly amazing trips. But I, the fall is so busy During uh, uh, doing, I guess, in the lower 48 hunts. It is always tough to get up there and, and yeah. do Alaska fall hunting.
0: Yeah. I guess the, the good thing about it is, is there a lot of good opportunity in August up there? But I guess, you know, if you're, if you're into, like, early muzzle and stuff, there's a lot of places in the Midwest you can get on some killer deer hunts early with the muzzle yeah, too. Yeah, dude. So,
1: Kansas has an early September hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically, we started in August as well, but we started over in Newfoundland. Okay. Newfoundland. Um, so, we started in Newfoundland or Newfoundland uh, super early uh, and then work our way back into the United States and work our way across It's kind of how we started out. Those, yeah, those, those, um, um, uh, different con or continents, um, uh, what would they be called? Provinces, there, you yeah. go. provinces you in go. Canada. Some of those start pretty early over there. So, um, uh, and that's a great thing, too. Obviously, I'm a super pro muzzleloader, but, uh, yeah. that's a great thing about muzzleloaders, too, is, is there's so many opportunities across the country to hunt with a muzzleloader. You know, mm-hmm. you can go to, and I know you're going to say some of this is unrealistic, but it's absolutely possible if you want to do it bad enough, but you can hunt in Newfoundland, come back and hunt in Kansas, uh, first of September with a muzzleloader when people are still not bow hunting yet. Yep. Um, and from there you can go up into Kentucky, which has a really amazing early muzzleloader season, which is like the 15th of October. Uh, and then from there, man, you can just bang all the way through and, and still be running the same gun that you started with in August all the way into to January. Yeah. Um, You know, like Nebraska has, Nebraska and Iowa and Missouri have an amazing late season muzzleloader hunt after Christmas when most people are pretty much wrapped up for the year. Yeah. Um, We We have that too
0: here. We got some really good late season muzzleloader opportunity uh, around here, um, which is pretty cool. And um, man, you never told me your favorite hunt though. Did you have one?
1: Oh, it's absolutely hunt mule deer.
0: Oh, oh, okay. You did say that. Yeah,
1: Without question. Wyoming mule deer, man. Um, you know, that it's just, I think, uh, obviously growing up here in the south, you know, you, you dream about hunting someplace you think you'll never be able to go, and that that western push was always very strong for me. Yep. Um, just because growing up here, um, the west is a big place, mm-hmm. uh and unless you're connected, it's it's hard to consume that you're going to go out there and try to do it on your own. Uh, and Thankfully, a gentleman took me out there, uh. When I was, I was late 20s i guess and then after that that's all i can think of is, is hunting wyoming montana colorado yeah uh,
0: yeah it, cha- it changed everything for me actually my first trip ever was in alaska believe it or not wow uh, my a, first
1: that's a big start
0: i know i went with somebody who'd been a, a few times um and uh that was a life-changing trip and then we did kodiak the next year and uh, this will be my third time in alaska but um but yeah, man, and, and muzzle have come a long way since you know I used to have that the old night disc rifle, oh, yeah. and that thing would take forever to clean. Oh, My that's goodness. brutal, bro! Like
1: that baby was new, son.
0: Oh <laughs> yeah, and that th- and I was a kid too. Like I didn't want to spend like two hours cleaning a gun every time I went out, so I kind of dropped it after a while. But um, um, you actually kindly sent me a LRX. Like, I keep looking it because I got it sitting right over here um and that thing is sweet man with the 209 powder and uh it's pr- it's pretty easy to clean um i got the oh, uh oh, man. the globe you know, site on that thing and getting dialed you
1: know we're talking about technology and obviously we had some technical difficulty here earlier but technology <laughs> is when it when it's good it's amazing and uh from the night disc rifle days that you're talking about to our break open CBA muzzleloaders, and that's the Wolf Optima and Acura series that we build today, Yeah, um, technology has come a long ways. And, and when I first started hunting with a muzzleloader, it was a side lock. It happened to be a CBA, uh, St. Louis Hawking actually, side lock. And I'd have to soak that stupid thing in the bathtub for 15 minutes and hear my parents scream at me for this big, nasty black crud ring around the rim <laughs> of the tub. Um, And now with modern propellants, so technology has changed in manufacturing and the muzzleloaders in general, but technology has also changed in the projectiles that we shoot, Mm -hmm. the powder that we uh, use to propel those projectiles, and the most modern powder that we're using now is Blackhorn 209, which is a loose powder, um, and it it doesn't have any sulfur in it, so it does not corrode the muzzleloaders like what people thought they used to. Um, You can clean it up with water it's not hydroscopic so it doesn't absorb water so it doesn't affect you when you're in inclement weather hunting in snow or rain so the modern advancements in everything that we have the gun the powder and the bullets has helped us out so much that it makes life so much easier to be a muzzleloader hunter today
0: yeah yeah man and um yeah it's just it's a it's a simple weapon but um really well made i guess you know they got the bergara barrels on them um, which is pretty cool um, and, uh, what was I going to, I can't, I just blanked out. On what I was going to say, but, um, but anyway, I've been taking the thing out. Like I've been trying to do like one range a week already just because, yeah, you know, it's a new gun, new system. Um, and, uh, I want to be this tag. I it's ridiculous, man. I haven't even killed the elk yet. This is my first elk hunt ever. And it's like a 1% draw odds, New Mexico elk tag. Like it's pretty wicked, but, um, so I'm trying to not too much put too much pressure on myself, but at the same time, like, you know, do the hunt justice. So I definitely want to get you know I'm getting my system dialed in. And uh, one thing that you know recently I just switched over. You mentioned it earlier from volumetric to I started weighing my powder out because I started to noti- the next level now by yeah yeah I I started noticing um, you know I do my little eyeball measurement or whatever. And then I get to the range, and it's, like, way different, like, just because of temperatures or whatever, like, expansion. And, mm-hmm. and then um, I even started looking at some of the plastic tubes and, like, putting them next to each other. And some of them are, are way different.
1: <laughs> oh, big time. <laughs> and know, so that's... I'm like,
0: dude, what? This is ridiculous. I'm going to start weighing my powder. So I got me a little scale, and I'm just over there, like,
1: ding, 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 ding. we're weighing powder now down to the tenth of grain. Um, oh yeah, which has uh, really changed the game for us as far as as long range shooting with a muzzleloader, because that that those two uh, scenarios never come to play up until recent long range and muzzleloader that they, they, yeah. they, they didn't comprehend right. Um, and back in the day, um, when I first got into muzzleloading, the accuracy guarantee in a night muzzleloader was seventy five yards. I mean today I can throw a muzzleloader pretty decent at 75 yards <laughs> um, and I and I, I think too we also um, have more modern technology in optics than we had before yeah um, we always ran three by nine by 40 millimeters before and now we're running uh, four to 18s with the 34 millimeter tubes and adjustable yep. turrets of you know 60 moA adjustment and all this stuff that never um, Never come into play back in the '90s and yeah. 2000s, and um, you know today some of the muzzles that we manufacture. I mean, I have very effectively run them at sub MOA, sub minute of angle out to 800 yards.
0: Whew, jeez, dude, yeah,
1: it's insane. That's I mean, I, I think back in the day we thought the bullet disappeared after 100 yards. We <laughs> we just didn't know where it went. Yeah. we didn't have the skills to be able to figure out the drop and the adjustment. With you know, there were no hash marks in the scopes or anything like that. It was just yeah. crosshair. it. Yeah. Hold three inches higher. Hold over his back. That's <laughs> yeah. all we had,
0: you know? Yeah, dude. Um, so as far as as far as that goes, are there any other um like small like accuracy tips that you might throw in other than weighing your powder that might help me out?
1: Uh, so d- depends on which projectile you're shooting. Here's one thing to keep in mind so, um, so we own CVA, we, as a, as a brand on power belt, uh, bullets, right. um, and they are, they have a gas check in the back, but they're basically considered a full bore bullet, meaning that that bullet does not ride in a sleeve or yeah. a sabot or a sabote, depending on how you say it, where are you right. from? Um, but the, uh, one thing that I learned over the years is so, also, while I was working for Night Muscles, I became a competitive shooter and I shot on the Night Rifle shooting team in Friendship, Indiana uh, for eight consecutive years. And so you probably the, know
0: Jim Shockey then.
1: Oh, I know Jim. Yeah. Jim yeah. and I worked together for a long time. And when Jim ended up leaving Night Rifles, that basically opened the door for me to take over his position as. Oh, okay. In essence, face of the brand. When he left, I started doing all the commercials. Uh, I was the okay. face in all the commercials. I was the face in every print. Because he was ad. doing
0: like everything. Was, I, the first time I ever came across Jim Shockey, was he was doing like the slam with the muzzle, Night Muzzler.
1: Yep, yep. Called the Ultimate Slam, and and Night at that time uh, still does actually. At that time, started that slam, owned the name and the rights to the intellectual properties of Ultimate Slam, uh, and then um, for the most part, Night paid for most of those hunts that Jim went on back in the day to try to uh, nice. accomplish that, uh, slam with the muzzleloader.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I interrupted you though. You were saying something though about, I don't remember. <laughs> um, uh, um, Oh, I was saying, do you have any other accuracy tips other than yeah, so, powder?
1: So, so back in the day, everybody ran on a, uh, projectile or a mm. bullet that was riding in a sleeve. We right. called it the Sabbath or Sabo. Um, and, uh there's only one sabo manufacturer in the world um that is a company called MNP Modern Musloading Products I believe is right Interesting Um so they make uh a 3 uh three-ear or three-leaf sabo or a four-leaf sabo four and basically those leaves uh when they uh are expelled out of the end of the barrel out of the crown they those leaves or petals on the the Sabot fold backwards and and basically fall off the back of the bullet almost like a parachute on a dragster, if you will yeah. or like a out wad in a
0: shotgun shell,
1: yes, you yeah, just like a wad and a sh- so basically it's a wad yeah um, so if you're shooting a Sabo projectile, which I know a lot of people still do shoot that kind of uh projectile one thing to make sure is that you want to do for accuracy purposes. So like when that, um, when that bullet and uh, sleeve or sabot leaves the barrel and it's going out, the pedals on it will fold backwards. So it will do just like this. And when it does that, it pinches the base of the bullet because of the hinge point at the base. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you always want to make sure that when you're loading your muzzle loader, it's basically going to be le- leaned against the bench, your belt buckle is going to be facing your ramrod basically with the gun leaned against the bench. You always want to make sure one of those pedals on that boat always faces your belt buckle or faces the ramrod so that each bullet or projectile leaves the barrel identically every time. And the base of the projectile has the same pressure applied at the same location identically uh, as the one before. So awesome. in muzzle loading, um, accuracy is all about consistency. Meaning yes. you're going to do the same thing identically every time to achieve yep. long range proper accuracy.
0: That's a great tip. Um, okay, that's good. So yeah, I'm I'm shooting Barnes right now. Barnes T E Z, and I have some yep. Magnum MZ as well. Uh, Barnes is a partner yep, so, of mine, and I so have really great luck with their uh, centerfire cartridges. So. Um, I really like shooting solid copper, and um, so that's what I'm shooting yeah, now. Some but... of those
1: states require the solid copper projectiles, too. Um, yeah. We don't, at this point, make one of those in a power belt, um, in a power belt line. But those those uh, Barnes Bullets you're shooting, uh, I helped design those with Randy Brooks of Barnes oh, nice. Bullets back in the day when Randy actually owned Barnes Bullets. Um, the night rifle bullets that we had back in the 90s and 2000s, we called them night red hots. Um, and they were two fifties, uh, 285, two nineties, um, in yellow or black or blue, so those, um, and, uh, they were amazing projectiles and got to work hand in hand, building those, uh, with Randy Brooks to make them, well, what you're shooting today.
0: Nice. Okay. Well, that's a great tip. Um, I hadn't here, so thought about here's, that. Here's
1: one thing to think about too, um, uh, and I'll ask you this question. If you were going to go today to pick up a loading bullet, what weight would you typically drift to? Um,
0: well, I drifted to 250.
1: <laughs> okay. So that <laughs> is the most common projectile weight in the world uh-huh. is a 250-grain bullet, no matter what the maker is. Whether it's a power belt, uh, everybody tries to hover around a 250. Yeah but let's think about this for a minute. Let's get, so again, I talked about earlier behind my mind is mechanical. Uh-huh. Let's think about the mechanics behind this 250 grain projectile. So you think, um, that the 250 is going to be, it's, it's a lighter projectile. It's probably going to fly faster and shoot flatter because it's lightweight. Um, but there's a hundred different reasons why you should not shoot a 250 versus shooting a 300 or larger. Hmm. So, We'll think of... So, you remember the days when people in the archer world would shoot an overdraw and they would shoot a really short arrow because it was yeah. wicked fast?
0: Right. But then it'd probably be like all over the place.
1: Well, guess what people don't shoot anymore? Short arrows. Yeah. because and they're putting weights they on
0: the end of their arrows and stuff now. Yeah,
1: because they were, they were wicked fast, but they were super erratic and it just wasn't what people thought they were going to be. So, the overdraws yeah. went away. So, a 250 grain projectile... Is basically the same as that overdraw arrow. Hmm. It's very short. So when a bullet gets heavier in the muzzle loading world, the bullet gets heavier, and, and I guess centerfire too, now I'm thinking about this, uh, the bullet gets heavier so it doesn't get fatter. If it got fatter, it wouldn't go down the barrel.
0: Right. It just gets it longer. It gets longer.
1: Yeah. The longer it is, the better it's going to stabilize in flight.
0: So do you think it's worth changing?
1: Uh, if I was shooting, what, what you plan on shooting I would be shooting the 290 um which is a 290 TMZ um, mm-hmm. I believe it has a blue um polymer tip on the end of it yeah to so, I me mean, you
0: think you think um given that I'm maximum 200 yards probably 150 and in with open sight do you think it'll make a noticeable difference
1: all right, so let's let's go to another reason why you should shoot a heavier projectile. So let's say say you got two vehicles going down the road side by side, both are running 60 miles an hour.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One is a Volkswagen, brand new, ultra lightweight, super economical. Then you got a 1965 Cadillac right <laughs> beside it that weighs four tons and made out of the heaviest steel known to human existence, and they're both running side by side, parallel, going down the street it's 60 miles an hour so if both drivers slams on the brakes identically at the same time yeah which one's going to stop first
0: the light german one
1: the lightweight volkswagen
0: yeah i guess in my mind i was thinking 250 that's a huge projectile like that's
1: big enough you know what i mean so 290 is going to have more kinetic energy because it's bigger it'd be like It'd be like uh me hitting you versus the refrigerator Perry hitting you yeah. bigger massive fist. going to be more kinetic energy. Going to knock more teeth out because the refrigerator Perry has got bigger hands than I got. So yeah. for Muslim world, we have one projectile. We have one bullet to make your trip from your home to New Mexico, a coveted tag, thousands of dollars in tag and travel expenses. We have one bullet to make your hunt a success. We want the most accurate, heavy-hitting projectile that we can because in our world, we work off kinetic energy. Yeah. Our muzzleloaders are, in theory, depending on powder charge, but today, on average, 2,200 feet per second. A centerfire rifle is, on average, 2,800 feet per second. Mm-hmm. So a centerfire rifle shoots a lot of projectile, but a lot faster. So when it hits an animal, it vaporizes it, basically, Yeah. gear interior of the body cavity turns to juice, right? These muzzle loading projectiles are like a dump truck. They're moving along kind of slow, methodical, but when they hit you, they rattle your retinas. Yeah. So the bigger the projectile is, the more kinetic energy you're going to have, which is going to be uh, more ethical for harvest, um, more um, kinetic energy put into the animal. It's going to be more accurate um, because of the projectile is longer Uh, And here's one thing to kind of add to that. The third reason why you want to shoot a longer projectile. So I know in your scenario with open sights, you're probably not going to be shooting long range. You're talking about 200 yards on the inside, which I agree with that ethical uh, yardage. But in general speaking, if you plan on shooting a little bit further, um, the heavier projectile carries its weight and energy, forward moving inertia, carries it longer like the 65 Cadillac does. So your 250 grain bullet, if you zeroed at a hundred, it's probably gonna drop 12 to 13 inches at 200 yards. The 290 grain bullet's probably gonna drop 13 to 14 inches at 200 yards. Because even though it's bigger body mass and people think mechanically, oh, it's heavier, so it's gonna fall like a lead balloon quicker, mm-hmm. but it's not the case. Actually, the heavier projectile, because of the moving mass behind it, um, will actually shoot flatter at longer ranges so hmm. you have a more accurate projectile and a heavier one more kinetic energy and sh- flatter shooting trajectory and a heavier projectile versus a, a lighter 250.
0: oh i think you got me talked into it
1: <laughs> oh it's a it's and and man when i first was really dug into the well of musloading loading and traveled a lot uh i was a 250 man as well and i had explained to me many times over and over again that the heavier bullet was better and i'm like it just doesn't make sense to me but after we we broke it down and talked about three the three reasons why to shoot a heavier projectile and then shooting them at long distance and seeing the imprint on paper light bullet versus heavy bullet then it became very clear to me that the the better
0: okay um well I might uh reth- I got pl- that's, that's got plenty of time, so I'm glad we talked about it. Now I think I might uh rethink that decision. But uh so any, uh, you any, know, obviously heavier isn't there's always you know, there's a balancing point where like you don't want to go too heavy, but I think sure I don't, I think you you would recommend a two ninety though for that. Yeah, the so bars. in the bars
1: lineup the two ninety is, is about as close to three hundred as you can get. Uh, but if I can hover between two ninety and three thirty is kind of the sweet spot, uh, I feel for uh, okay. anything past that obviously does get a little bit too heavy you're talking about a threshold and that gets past that threshold being just yeah. too at that point. and
0: so right now i'm shooting 110 grain by volume which to in my math worked out to about 85 grain by weight charge how's that sound That's to great. you
1: money, money? uh and, and in theory the hundred if you're a volumetric powder measure guy um the according 100, to 100, according to
0: hogden it should be 77 grains by weight but i did my own and it was 85
1: well i mean you d- definitely got to check it because i i know i've checked a, a bunch of stuff that i found online and it, it did not fall to be true in my yeah. own personal world not saying that they were telling a story about what they printed it just was not that right. way in my world yeah right um but um and and in the muzzleloading world, most muzzleloaders that are on the market today are what we consider a Magnum muzzleloader, mm-hmm. meaning they can shoot up to 150 grains of powder. Um, but uh, I would wager to say that your car that you drive around every day says it'll run 120 miles per hour. Right. But it probably handles better at 65. Oh yeah. Um a, sure. a muzzleloading bullet is the same way. Yes, you can push it with 150 grains of powder, but a lot of times it's too fast and it gets a bit erratic. Yep. You will gain some muscle velocity and a touch of kinetic energy, but really at the end of the day, uh, it's not how fast you hit them. Yeah. It's where you hit them. So typically that 100 to 110 grains by volume is really a sweet spot where it's super accurate, but you also have enough speed to do what you need to do. Yeah. Anything past that seems to be a little hot and make things erratic in flight.
0: And – it starts to hurt really bad at the range.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it will my face out of your mouth for sure,
0: dude. That thing, is, I started. I mean, seriously, I started putting like a like a towel when I go to the range on my shoulder because after like ten shots on that thing, like it starts to hurt, man.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, but you pushing, uh, pushing a bunch of a, a bunch of lead. Well, in your case, a bunch of copper, copper in front of that dude.
0: Yeah. Um. So so last question on that. Um, I asked the guys at Barnes this on a podcast, but I want to hear what what you think. Um, you're going out to the range to you know do some uh, to do some work, verifying, sighting in, whatever. Mm-hmm. What is your shooting and cleaning procedure for the the best kind of accuracy that you've found? Uh,
1: really great, really great question. Um, and it's a topic that gets asked all the time. Um, for accuracy in a muzzleloader, it's all about consistency um and consistency is weighing your powder uh doing the same thing every time we've already touched on that topic but it goes down to the ritual on the bench so i know a ton of guys that say they uh shoot three shots and then they swab after the third shot and shoot all over again well um even if you're shooting blackhorn um, everybody says you don't have to clean after black horn, but uh, if you shoot black horn one time you swap the barrel you'll notice there will be some residue in a patch so every time you shoot whether it's you're shooting pellets or loose powder whatever the case may be every time you shoot you build up a residue inside mm-hmm. the the barrel so when you do that the barrel gets smaller mm-hmm. sh- 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 yep. sh- just layers of powder residue so if you wait till three shots or five shots to clean um that fifth shot or that third shot is harder to load than the first shot because the inside diameter of the barrel is getting smaller. Yep. Um and when it's harder to load, it's also harder to get out. So it's going to build more chamber pressure because it's got to push through the tighter bore because of mm-hmm. the um crud that you've built up inside there. Yeah. So if it's harder to get out of the barrel, it's in, it's in essence the same way uh, or the same scenario as shooting more powder. So if it's hard to get down the barrel, the point ignition, it has to build more chamber pressure to push the bullet out of the barrel. So it's exactly the same as shooting more powder every time you squeeze the trigger. So for accuracy purposes, consistency is key. And the only way you can be consistent is shoot the gun, swab the barrel with a damp patch, swab it with a dry patch, load it again. That way that every time that bullet leaves the barrel, it has the same amount of restriction as the bullet did before. Right, right. It's identical the same way every time. And here's also another scenario. Say damp you, with damp with bore uh,
0: blaster, like a cleaner or
1: uh well, I mean with if you're shooting blackhorn two oh nine, the most modern propellant out there, you actually can do that with, with just spit on a patch. The old mm. scenario the spit patch that the mountain men used forever ago. Yeah. You can actually do that with black horn. If you're using like a, a Pyrodex pellets or uh, white hots, you typically have to put a little uh, cleaning solvent on a patch, run it down. So typical, my scenario is run the patch down, the damp one, flip it over once you've run it one time, then run it down the second time. So one patch, two passes, mm-hmm. and then run a dry patch down one time and then reload. That way that I know that the internal uh, portion of that barrel has the same cleanliness every time I squeeze the trigger. Mm. But let's say you didn't. Say so you're getting good accuracy um, with a three-shot or a five-shot group, then cleaning. So at the end of the day, you've got your gun zeroed in. You feel pretty confident with it. You've shot five times. You're going to clean it. And then you're going to load and you're going to go hunt tomorrow. Or you're going to go hunt next week. So your last shot that you're going to take is, oh, that's a good shot. Well, shot five times with a very dirty barrel. Yep. And then you're going to clean it and go hunt with a clean one tomorrow. Not cool. Yep. So if you clean after every shot with two patches or uh, a damp and a dry, then every time you go to the field you know I have the same restriction inside my barrel as I did when I was on the range. I have a clean yeah. bolt.
0: So that's interesting. So could I so can I tell you what the ballistics guy at Barnes said? Sure. He said he said, Go to the range with a clean gun, shoot it twice. Don't clean it. Those are fouling shots. Don't count them mm-hmm. and then shoot okay. three times. And those are your three shots of record. Then clean it.
1: Okay. So not, not to argue with that gentleman. Cause I, I probably know him. Greg um, Sloan. So this, that scenario, and there's is nothing only, personal. This is just, this Oh is just, yeah. No. So, yeah. so here, here's my, uh, uh, counter argument of that or counter statement. Of that, If you will, so at the end of the day, you've shot your gun. Mm-hmm. You got it zero to where you feel good. I'm going to go and get it cleaned up. I'm going to go hunt next week.
0: Right. Well, he says go out and shoot twice before you hunt with it.
1: So so when is the, <laughs> what time does opening day start? <laughs>
0: That's true. You might lie. not be able to shoot
1: twice before you go. My point exactly, my man. If you're awesome. on the range and you shoot, every shot is a clean bore. You always know what you have.
0: That's mm-hmm. true. All right, that's food well, for thought. I'll have to
1: yeah, food for thought. Food I for might thought. have to
0: change my whole system now because Smotherman <laughs> told me to get two nineties oh, and man, clean every we time.
1: Throwed, <laughs> we throwed the monkey ranch in. your Well, that's why throat. we're
0: doing this in June. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, man, this is this is awesome. Well, I I could probably sit here and talk to you for another hour, but um, I'm sure you got stuff to do. Oh man, um, dude,
1: I'm. I'm just tickled to be talking muzzleloader, man. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. Very thrilled for you to get to go out to New Mexico. Uh, I've hunted New Mexico many times there in Mahila with a muzzleloader. Okay, um, and it was not with open sights; it was when they allowed optics. So, yeah, I don't envy that side of it, but I do envy <laughs> you, and I'm super proud that you're going to go take a run at it.
0: Yeah, man. Um, yeah, I'm stoked to be shooting a CVA, and um, it's it's a lot of fun to shoot. It's uh it's a, it's a, I guess a, a well-made weapon. Um I'm I'm stoked with it. So so thanks for that and um, um You
1: bet man. Proud for you man.
0: Yeah man. Um hopefully uh you know season 2 there'll be a a nice uh, little bull going down on camera Lord willing We'll see.
1: Well I, uh, just so you know uh, I will be stalking you uh through the world wide web of Instagram or something other yeah. to see what you're up to out there. I want to uh, I want to see some updates on it. Absolutely. I'll, I'll living, keep you informed. Uh I'll be living through you.
0: Well, dude, you're probably busy mid October, but you're welcome to join.
1: I will be in Wyoming.
0: Okay, cool. Well, we i had had to throw it out. Good, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Like, that's the thing. Is like I, I think I'm just gonna bring my cousin because it'll be a fun story. Because, like that first LBL hunt we went on, I was with him. This was our mm-hmm. my first ever Western animal on public land DIY. I was with him, and so it, and my first ever public land animal was here in virginia i was with him so it'll be kind of a cool story and I, and all my oh, other he's, like he's industry like f- hat man yeah yeah and all my other like industry friends you know it'll be busy and i think it'll be more it'll just be more fun just to have my cousin like both of us go out there and don't know what the crap we're doing and like maybe stumble across like some sick bull you know
1: <laughs> oh my gosh man you know just just you guys being out there together, you know. At the end of the day, it's, there's there's a couple things important, and and one of the important things is family. And absolutely, it's, it's awesome that number one that, well, number one that he has the ability and time to take off to go hang out with you. But
0: yeah, um, well, I'm still bugging him on that. He hasn't confirmed yet, but
1: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it'll happen because I'm gonna tell you when you get a bull down, uh, especially like that area that we used to hunt out there in the Gila, man. You get a bull down, you need help.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure so hopefully that'll work out man but uh yeah let's let's stay in touch and um you know check out the first season of the show that actually the first episode just aired on monday and it'll run again at noon on saturday so if you get a chance to to flip it on it's reaching
1: uh, those goals man that's awesome dude yeah
0: it's a it's a it's a cool hunt it's a diy public land zero point uh wyoming antelope hunt I went out there yeah, and we, so
1: did, with your uh, inaugural airing, did you have friends and family over and hang out and watch it together? So
0: yeah, the first airing was on a Monday, so I didn't, but I'm actually having a little party on Saturday with some, some folks coming over to, to kind of have a little watch party to celebrate it.
1: Yeah, dude, that's awesome. I did the same thing, man. When my personal show hit the air the first dude. time on. it was, it was awesome. Uh, yeah. It's,
0: it's a lot of work, man. It's worth celebrating, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely, man. For sure. Yeah. Um, it just shows how much fun you have doing it. Uh, the downside is people watching with you don't realize how brutal of work <laughs> it is behind the scenes to make it oh, happen. Oh my
0: gosh, yeah. <laughs> well, my wife will realize cause the amount of time I spend in this chair, but, um, but yeah, man. So, well, it's been great talking to you, dude. Uh, we'll have to do another one uh, after the season Bro. and just catch up and see how their seasons went.
1: Man, always a pleasure, man. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. And if you guys listen tonight, if you have any other questions or concerns about cba you can always go to cba.com and find anything yep. that we manufacture uh or if you want to just want to hit me up personally um anything that i do on social media is always traveling hunter
0: cool yeah man well thanks again and uh we'll we'll be in touch man appreciate it all
1: right, all right bro take care call me if you need me <laughs> thanks man yes sir bye-bye